You are now listening to the October 1st broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have 12 Apostles, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with 12 Apostles. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with the Twelve Apostles. Today, we will continue to learn about Apostle Matthew. Let's now read both verses of 10 and 11 from Matthew chapter 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. After he left his work desk and became Jesus' disciple, Matthew threw a feast. Many tax collectors and sinners gathered at the feast. From verse 11, we see that tax collectors and prostitutes came to his feast. Prostitutes were women who made money by selling their bodies, and tax collectors were men who made money by selling their country. Together, they represented the worst kind of sinners in Israel. But Matthew invited them to the feast after he came to know Jesus. Why? Could it be because he wanted to have a last powwow before he committed himself to Jesus? Kind of like having one last all-out party before he went off with Jesus? No, of course not. It seems like there were two reasons for Matthew to host a feast. The first is perhaps to bid farewell to his shameful old life in the presence of invited guests as witnesses. The second was probably to introduce Jesus to his friends. When Matthew referred to himself in the book of Matthew, he called himself Matthew the tax collector. This is in contrast to how he recorded other disciples by their usual names. He singled himself out as Matthew, the tax collector. He could have tried to hide his shameful past, since the book of Matthew was going to be read by all Christians through many generations. But he specifically called himself Matthew, the tax collector, to communicate to the readers that he was once a great sinner in Israel but was transformed when he met Jesus and became Jesus' disciple. He must have wanted to let others know that anyone can be changed once they meet Jesus. Then he spread the gospel to his people of Israel. Until then, Matthew as the tax collector and his Jewish people had been hostile towards each other. We might say they were basically enemies, yet... For whom was Matthew writing the book of Matthew for? It was for his people of Israel. We know this because he started the book of Matthew by introducing the genealogy of Jesus in chapter 1. When the Jews saw a genealogy that started with Abraham, the father of Israel, and how it continued to Jesus Christ, they would realize, wow, Jesus Christ is the descendant of Abraham and he is the Messiah whom God promised. 
And in order to help the Jews understand better, Matthew quoted from the Old Testament about a hundred times. This number is greater than the number of times the Old Testament is quoted in the books of Mark, Luke, and John combined together. Matthew emphasized this in the book of Matthew. The prophecy in the Old Testament is fulfilled through Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. Beloved listeners, don't we also have those friends and family members who must meet Jesus? Go to them and invite them to Jesus. On Friday, November 23, 1963, around 12.30 p.m., there was the sound of three gunshots that reverberated across the U.S. that is forever etched in people's memory. They were aimed at the president's car while he was parading in a convertible at the Dealey Plaza in Dallas, Texas. The next moment, one of the most beloved and respected presidents in the history of the United States of America, John F. Kennedy, fell and died. A few months before his death, President Kennedy attended the National Prayer Breakfast and listened to Pastor Billy Graham's sermon, Prepare Your Soul. Kennedy was moved by Pastor Graham's sermon. After the prayer breakfast, Kennedy invited Pastor Graham to join him at the White House to talk further about the sermon. But Pastor Graham declined. He did so on the account of having the flu at the time. Pastor Graham said, Mr. President, I'd like to postpone our meeting if possible because I have the flu and I don't want to give it to you. But soon after that, Pastor Graham heard the news about the assassination of the president. Pastor Graham could not help but recall President Kennedy's desire to continue the conversation further at the White House a few months ago. The whole thing flashed across Pastor Graham's eyes. Billy Graham recorded in his biography about this incident. He said that not having been able to talk sufficiently about the gospel and eternal kingdom of God with John F. Kennedy was the greatest regret in his life. Beloved listeners, do not wait to share the gospel with others. We may regret it, as Pastor Billy Graham did. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 9, verses 12 and 13. But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. There are many people who are spiritually ill. They may pretend as if there is nothing wrong with them, but they are not well. Invite them to a meal like Matthew did. Have a deep spiritual conversation with them. Invite them to church and have them meet Jesus. I hope we will be able to do that. The future of Matthew the tax collector had been guaranteed with wealth and materialistic returns, yet he was willing to give it all up. He got up from his desk without hesitation when he discovered a hidden treasure in Jesus Christ. He came to love Jesus so much that he invited his friends and held a feast for all to see. The grace he received 
then led him through the rest of his life. Later in Matthew's life, he went to Ethiopia so people there would know about Jesus. It is said that in the end, he was martyred at the hand of an executioner wielding an axe and a spear. When I look at Matthew's life, I am reminded of the hymn, I'd Rather Have Jesus, just as was evident in the Apostle Matthew's life. I hope we all will be able to confess we'd rather have Jesus and live for his glory. This concludes today's episode of The Twelve Apostles. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again next week.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is God, why? I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. So we're in Job 3, which means we're jumping past the start of this book, which we've studied before as a church family. So I don't want to go back over all of Job 1 and 2, but for those of you who may not be familiar with this story, here's the setup. In the beginning of Job 1, Job had everything he desired, a wife, a house full of children, a wealth of possessions, good health, and he was blameless and upright before God. He feared God, he did good, turned away from evil, but then in an instant, you read Job 1, it's like a torrent of waves that come one after another after another. All of his possessions are stripped away from him. And then all 10 of Job's children die instantly. And then in Job 2, he loses his good health. Physically, he is in miserable pain. And his wife is telling him to curse God and die. Yet after all of this, at the end of Job 1 and 2, he is still worshiping God. Amen. Job 1 says when all this happened to his possessions and then his children, Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Then, at the end of Job 2, now mired in physical pain, his wife telling him to curse God and die, Job 2.10 says, he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. These are two of the most remarkable statements of faith ever recorded in history. Statements of trust in and worship of God in the middle of unimaginable tragedy and loss and hurt and pain. Yet, this was just the beginning It's one thing to experience a sudden tragedy. It's an entirely different challenge, isn't it, to experience the pain of that loss for days and months and years afterward. And that's the journey that begins to unfold in Job 3. As we see this blameless, upright man who's completely committed to God, but is wrestling and struggling deeply with God over the mysteries of God's ways. Job wrestling with questions, God, why? And he's wrestling with these questions in a trash heap amidst unimaginable physical pain and hurt. And before long, some supposed friends show up named Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And after Job initially speaks in Job 3, a threefold cycle begins where Eliphaz speaks, then Job responds. And Bildad speaks, then Job responds. And Zophar speaks, and Job responds. And they do this rotation three times, although the third time one of them basically drops out and a new guy named Elihu comes in. 
And on a whole, the counsel these friends give is extremely unhelpful. Remember, as you read through the book of Job, if you're following along in our Bible reading, just because something is in the Bible doesn't mean it's an example for us to follow. There are many things in the Bible that God gives us as examples not to follow. And that includes much of the counsel we see from these supposed friends. Now, don't be mistaken, much of what these friends say at different points is true, but the way they apply that truth is often unhelpful. Or their timing or tone in sharing certain truths are unhelpful. And then some of the things they say just aren't true. At the core of their unhelpful counsel is an insistence that surely Job has done something to deserve this. When that was not the case. But these guys had no category for innocent suffering. They thought if something bad happens to you, then you deserve it. If Something good happens to you, you deserve that. That is horrible theology. Nevertheless, in the middle of all these conversations between Job and these guys, we do find some anchors to ground our hearts and our minds amidst the waves of why questions in our lives. And Job 3 is exactly the place to start because of how many times Job asks why. I want to read the whole chapter for us and I would just encourage you, circle every time you see the question, why? So we'll start in Job chapter 3, verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Job said, so he's speaking to his friends, let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those who curse it, who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. And then he says, why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver? Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery? and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing I fear comes upon me. And what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. 
Wow. I'm talking about heavy. This is the first time we hear Job speak after his declarations of faith in God. And six different times in this chapter, he's asking, why? And his why question really is the most fundamental of all. Why was I even born? Like, if this is what I was going to experience, why did you even make me God? Feel the depth of emotion in this man who is coming before God in faith, hurting and broken, asking, why am I even here? With a clear implication, I don't want to be here. I don't want to live. Like he's longing for death. Yet, in the chapters that follow, I want to show you the fruit of this kind of honest faith. I want to show you the anchors that Job, amidst real, raw emotions and questions, is holding onto in his why questions, because they're the same anchors that God has given you and me to hold onto. So here's the first. I would encourage you to write this down. First one, amidst all your questions about why, Remember that God is all wise. So I try to intentionally phrase this in a way to be memorable that when you think of why and all your questions about why, you remember God is all wise. And there's so much we could look at here that you'll see if you're following along in the Bible reading over the next couple of weeks. But I want you to go ahead and jump ahead with me to Job 28, because this is what many biblical scholars say contains the central scene and really literary climax of Job's journey. So obviously, uh, when you get to uh, chapter 38 and God speaks to Job, like there's that's a climactic moment for sure from the last few chapters of the book. But here, right in the middle of the book, it's why Job is referred to in the Bible as wisdom literature, in large part because of this chapter. So as Job is wrestling with why, listen to what he says, starting in Job chapter 28, verse 12. He says, but where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? And he starts talking about wisdom, much like we see in the book of Proverbs. Man does not know its worth. It's not found in the land of the living. The deep says it's not in me. The sea says it's not with me. It, talking about wisdom, cannot be bought for gold and silver, cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of offer and precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come? Where is the place of understanding? It's hidden from the eyes of all living, concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. Then he says, God understands the way to it. He knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and he sees everything under the heavens. 
when he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. To turn away from evil is understanding. That's straight Proverbs. Wisdom. Job is searching for wisdom here, understanding. And he's frustrated because he knows that God possesses it and he doesn't have it. So when you get down to verse 23, you see, and I want you to follow this, maybe write these down. This is so key for us amidst our why questions. I want to show you three ingredients that are necessary for wisdom. So look at this picture with me. One, wisdom involves knowledge. God understands the way to it. He knows its place. So to be wise is to have knowledge. Then second ingredient, wisdom involves perspective. Verse 24, for God looks to the ends of the earth. He sees everything under the heavens. So wisdom is the ability to perceive, to know, to perceive. And then third, wisdom involves experience. Job starts talking about how God has created everything. Everything He gave to the wind its weight, portioned the waters by measure, made a decree for the rain, a way for the lightning and the thunder. He made everything himself, and he's the one who saw wisdom. He declared wisdom. He established wisdom. He searched it out. In the first place, God formed wisdom from the beginning. So, But these three ingredients, knowledge, perspective, experience, let's meditate for a moment on our limited wisdom. So let's just think for a minute in each of our lives about how we as human beings, as creatures, not the creator, how we lack all of these things, don't we? Like we lack knowledge. We lack so much knowledge, perspective, and experience, and God lacks none of these things, which is why in the middle of our why questions, right in the middle of the book of Job, we have this central climactic declaration that God is all wise, and as a result, God is trustworthy. You and I honestly ask, how can we trust God when this or that happened or this or that is happening? And the answer is, you can trust God when you remember that his knowledge is perfect. Which leads right in to the second anchor amidst the wave of why questions we have in this fallen world. In the depth of your despair, hold fast to God as your hope. In the depth of your despair, you can hold fast to God 
as your hope. So think back to chapter 3. I think depth of despair is an appropriate description of Job. Don't you? Like he's despairing of life itself. The number of times he talked about darkness, right? this picture of despair. And that continues throughout his various responses to his friends. Here's just a few examples. Job 6, 8 and 9. Oh, that I might have my request, that God will fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. Job 7, 16. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone for my days are a breath. Job 10, 20. Are not my days few? Then cease and leave me alone that I may find a little cheer before I go and I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of gloom like thick darkness, like deep shadow without any order where there is light as thick darkness. You see that repetition, darkness, thick darkness, thick darkness. He says, Job 17, 13, if I hope for Sheol, death is my house. If I might make my bed again in darkness, if I say to the pit, you're my father, to the worm, my mother or my sister, where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? You see it. Job is covered up in the depth of despair. And what's he longing for? Like hope. Where is my hope? Who will see my hope? Which is the challenge, right? It's what despair is. It's, it's darkness with no sign of light on the horizon. You ever been there? And Job hits rock bottom in a sense in chapter 19. Listen to these words that he says to his friends as he feels like everyone is against him. Everything is against him. He has put my brothers far from me. Those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I've become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife. I'm a stench to the children of my own mothers, brothers and sisters. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me. Those whom I have loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh. I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Oh, you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Despair, desertion, destruction, and seemingly no hope. But it's at this point, in the depth of Job's despair, that we read one of the most remarkable, thrilling, triumphant parts of this entire book. Listen to Job in the very next sentence. He says, oh, that my words were written. Oh, they were inscribed in a book. Just feel the intensity here. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. What words? Here it is, verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. 
and my eyes shall behold and not another, my heart faints within me. Wow. In the depth of Job's despair, he cries out, I still have hope. And let's be clear, Job still has why questions. It's not like all of a sudden they've been answered. Quite the opposite. Job doesn't seem to have any of them answered. He doesn't know why. But follow this. He does know who. So he cries out, I know this. There's a lot of things I don't know. All these questions I don't know, but I know this. I know I have a redeemer who lives. A redeemer. A vindicator. This word is used in Ruth to describe the champion of the oppressed. It's used in Exodus to describe the deliverer of the captives. It's used in Proverbs to describe the defender of the weak. Job says, I, and there's an emphasis there, even I, just like you see, for myself, me, not another, I, I have a redeemer who lives and at the last. That's a great phrase. I don't miss it. This is not the last. This pain, this suffering, this hurt, this heartache, this is not the last. This is not the end. At the last, he will stand upon the earth. And he will deliver me after my skin has been thus destroyed. There's something after. There's something after your sin is just, skin is destroyed. There's something after the pain and the hurt and the heartache and the sickness and the loss and the grief. There's something after. After my skin has been thus destroyed, in my flesh I shall see God. Amen. What? In my flesh? Yes, in my flesh. I shall see him for myself with my own eyes. My eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. My heart longs and yearns and hopes within me. Oh, friend. No matter how young or old you are, no matter what you have been through, no matter how hard and painful your why questions are, I urge you today, hold fast to God in hope. Do not turn away from God in your despair. Where in this world where will you turn? Who or what in this world is infinitely wise and perfectly worthy of your trust? There is only one. And for all who trust in him, for you, when you hold fast to hope in him, you will behold him as your redeemer. As your, just feel this, your vindicator, your defender, your deliverer, your provider, your healer, the one who alone can make all things new in your life and in this fallen world of sin and evil and suffering, in your flesh, you will see God. 
your hope face to face and he will wipe every tear from your eyes and he will satisfy you forever and ever and ever. So hold fast to hope in the all-wise, infinitely, eternally trustworthy God today. I just want to pray over you. Would you bow your heads with me? God, amidst all of the why questions on our hearts and minds, we look to you together right now. And God, I just want to intercede on behalf of every single person in the sound of my voice. God, I pray that they would know in this moment that you love them, that you, the all-wise God, love them. Oh God, for anyone who has not put their trust in Jesus as Redeemer, may this be the day. May this be the moment where they trust in you, Jesus, what you did on the cross to forgive them of their sins, to restore them to relationship with you. And God, for all who have put their trust in Jesus, may they know that you have You have given them eternal life for the next 10 trillion years and beyond. So they can trust you with today and tomorrow and this week, no matter what it holds. God, we praise you for your wisdom. We just confess together right now, we lack knowledge and perspective and experience and we don't understand as a result we don't understand why this or that but we're trusting that you're all wise and you see all things and you know all things and you're working all things together for the good of those who love you and have been called according to your purpose so we're trusting in you and God we, we pray for that kind of faith on days when faith is hard to come by God I know there are weary heads in this gathering right now where that faith is hard to come by God I pray that you'd give faith strength, comfort, peace that makes no sense, joy in chaos, and and hope that transcends anything this world brings our way. Jesus, we praise you for your death on the cross for us, for your resurrection from the grave. We praise you that you are our redeemer and you live And we long for, we look forward to the day when we will see your face and you will wipe every tear from our eyes. So help us to hold fast to hope until that day when faith becomes sight. Oh God, we love your word. We love your word. We need your word. In this fallen world, just honestly confess, we don't understand so many things, but we trust your word. And we trust your wisdom. We praise you. We just, God, even as I'm praying this right now, I think, what would it be like if if the sovereign creator of all wasn't all wise? If you didn't have all knowledge and perspective, you were just doing the best you could, but you didn't have all that. God, we're so thankful you're all wise. And we're so thankful that you're all good and all loving. We're so thankful. So keep our eyes fixed on you, we pray. In Jesus' name, we pray all these things. And all God's people said, Amen. 
believe in the sun I believe in the risen one I believe I overcome By the power of His blood Amen Covered in sin and shame I heard mercy call my name He rolled the sun away Amen, amen I'm alive, I'm alive because He lives The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundsted, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. The Lord Jesus himself, when he was addressing the character of false teachers on the Sermon on the Mount said that a good tree does not produce bad fruit and a bad tree does not produce good fruit. And he said, so then you'll know them by their fruits. Now, fruit bearing is not from our perspective, but from God's perspective. 
You see, the Lord Jesus addressed this also when he confronted the religious hypocrites, whose outward appearance was good, but ultimately they came from rotten inside hearts. In the book of Matthew, he says, How can you, being evil, speak what is good? Speak what is good. Ultimately pointing out the hypocrisy of their false fruit, that fruit that isn't from him, coming from evil hearts. So with this in mind, we recognize that those who do not know Christ will never, ever bear good fruit. They will never bear it because they do not have a relationship with the Lord. As Jesus said about those branches that wouldn't produce fruit, they would be gathered up and thrown into the fire. So then, biblically, we see those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ are going to produce good fruit. But yet, we come to a difficulty when we see Christians who are not producing fruit, who are not producing the character of Christ. Well, what about these? What about these who appear to be believers? Well, today I think we're going to see motivation for true believers to be diligent in growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe we're going to see within that that it is when God works through us that we have an assurance of salvation. As you turn your Bibles to Second Peter, we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 11. And as I've mentioned before, this is a portion that is part of a larger section of text. It really begins in verse 2 and ends, you know, 11, but maybe even 12. I wanted to do 12 today also, but there just was not enough time. So with that in mind, I just want to briefly go through the context of this wonderful book of Second Peter. Peter identifies himself as the writer, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. And the Lord has made it known, he'll share this later on in the letter, that his departure is imminent. This is his final words. And he is writing this second letter, he says, within this book. And obviously that means it's a second letter to the same people he had written to before, but it seems to be going much beyond that to all believers. As we know, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for those things, right? Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Within that, he's writing simply a tremendous letter concerning the reality of a relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, this book is about growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at verse 2 in chapter 1, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. And we're going to see today in our passage in verse 8 that if these qualities are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in contrast to the false teachers who twist the word of God and pervert it and put it down, Peter says that we should be growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ as he closes the book. Chapter 3, verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and the day of eternity. Amen. This book is about growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we see, and as we've seen, we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord through his word in a real relationship with him. We have his precious and magnificent promises that through them we might be partakers of the divine nature. We see that in chapter 1. 
And the Apostle Peter is reminding believers of things that they should already know. What we're going to see today is stuff that we should already know as believers, but we need to be reminded. Look at verse 12, and this is the verse I wanted to add to our passage today, but we're just not going to get time for it. Therefore, I shall always be ready to remind you, chapter 1, of these things, even though you already know them. We should know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. And I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent, that at any time after my departure, you may be able to call these things to mind. Peter is writing so that we can call these things to mind, these things that we should know, but we need to remember. If you look at chapter 3, verse 1, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. This is a reminder. This is a reminder of what we should know. And it is about the most important thing, a relationship with the living God, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He shares the most important thing. And as I've already mentioned, threaded throughout this letter are warnings concerning the threats to growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And specifically, we'll see false teachers in chapter 2, those who pervert, twist, and mock the word of God those who would take the difficult passages and twist them to their own destruction. So with that in mind, these are Peter's last words in his second epistle, and they are very important, and they are a reminder for us as we see the most important thing, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, today I believe we're going to see a motivation for us to be obedient, for us to be diligent in growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this will produce a true, genuine assurance of true salvation. All right, turn with me to Second Peter chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 8 to 11, but I want to read up through that again, as I mentioned. Chapter 1, verse 2, let's start there. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. And then our passage, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. 
For in this way, entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Tremendous passage. And our passage, as we begin, begins for us in verse 8, and it's connected. Notice the term for. It's actually an explanation of what has previously been spoken of. It's connected to what we saw in our last time in Second Peter. And so what did we see in our last time in Second Peter? Let's review what we have seen because it is all connected together when we need to understand it rightly. Remember, we saw God's desire for true believers was, verse 2, grace to you and peace be multiplied, be multiplied, be added and in abundance in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. God's desire is for us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, to grow in a real relationship. You can't grow in the grace if you're not in Christ. You can't grow more and more dependence on Him and the knowledge of Him unless you have a relationship with Him. And notice we have this incredible statement, verse 3, seeing that His divine power has granted to us, this is believers as we're seeing, those who have a like faith of the apostles, verse 1, true believers seeing His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Tremendous verse. We have everything we need. God has graciously granted it to us abundantly by His divine power. Everything we need for life and godliness. Everything we need for the Christian life, for our life in Christ, and to reflect His character and walk rightly before Him. Everything we need for life and godliness. And this comes in the context of a relationship with Him through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Tremendous reality. We have to remember this passage is connected, what we're going to see today, connected to what I'm reading right now. You can't go out and do the things that we're going to see unless you have a relationship in the context of Christ and His Word, as we'll say. The sphere in which we've been granted everything is within our relationship with Jesus Christ. And then we have a tremendous explanation concerning how everything has been provided to us. Verse 4, For by these, that's speaking of His tremendous character, He has granted us His precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. He has provided, granted us his precious and magnificent promises. Precious, tremendously valuable, magnificent, the greatest. It's by his word that we partake of his nature. He uses his spirit-empowered word to change our lives. That's why His Word is so important. It's God speaking to us through His Word by His Spirit. He uses it in order that you might become partakers of the divine. We might become like Christ. Those who have escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. We partake of the very glorious character of God by means of the Word working out in our lives within the context of a true relationship with Jesus Christ. So then... When it comes to growing in our relationship with Christ, we remember and must remember we have everything we need pertaining to life and God. Everything. Everything. 
And so you say, wow, we've got his magnificent and precious promises. What else do we need? We're good to go. And, and that's true. But yet God calls us at this point to act upon what he has spoken concerning a real relationship with him. He calls upon us to act or obey in the context of faith. You see, God has given us everything we need, and then there is our response. You say, wait a second, you always say apart from him we can do nothing. That's right, apart from him we can do nothing. But in a relationship with him, we can do everything he calls us to do. We are called to act in obedience, as we will see, to the word of God. God calls us not simply to trust in him, but that trust will manifest in a real relationship where we are reflecting his character and obeying him in regards to our everyday circumstances, situations, and thoughts. God calls upon us to act upon what he said in the context of a real relationship. Acting upon it apart from a real relationship is hypocrisy. It's like the Pharisees. The outside may look good, but the inside is corrupted. This is acting within a real relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what we saw last time in verse 5. Now for this very reason. For the reason that God has given you everything you need in your relationship with Christ. Through his word, he says, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply. And if you were here last time, we saw that that term supply is the main verb. It speaks of furnishing or adding to. We are to do some things. We are to furnish these things. They are to come from us in the context of a relationship with Christ. And it's in the context here of faith. Apart from faith, we can't please God. Apart from trusting and relying on Him, we can do nothing. But he says, applying all diligence. All diligence. We should not be lazy Christians. We should be continually, habitually, diligently supplying these things to our everyday lives and actions as the Word works in our hearts. And what are those things? He says, moral excellence. Moral excellence. The reality that as we trust the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word works in our hearts, we are to do the right thing, morally speaking. We are to step out and apply the truth in the relationship to how we see things and think. Moral excellence speaks of moral qualities worthy of praise. No longer are we doing those wicked things that are not worthy of praise at all. We are to step out in obedience and supply moral excellence. It is his righteous character by faith in our everyday lives. Secondly, we should be increasing and growing in the knowledge of God and his word. We should be growing in our state. We should not be stagnant, thinking the same about God the way we were when we first got saved. We should be growing in that knowledge as the word works in our hearts. Remember, it's the word by faith. That's the only way. Third, we should be increasing in self-control. We didn't have it before. We had externals that helped us be controlled, whether it's punishment for something or motivation for something else. But when we came to Christ, we have the Spirit of God that enables us, by the Word of God, to say no. To say no to things. To say no to self. I didn't have that power before. I was a slave. Now in Christ, I can yield myself to Christ, and I don't have to sin. I can go to Christ for deliverance from sin instead. Self-control. Fruit of the Spirit we should be more and more and more saying no to ourselves in the context of a real relationship, not a phony one, abiding and trusting Christ instead. 
And more and more we should be persevering, remaining under. As difficulties come for whatever reason, we know that faith produces endurance, right? The testing of our faith. As we trust the Lord, believing His Word, He produces endurance in our lives. That should be increasing in true believers. We should know this too, right? You should know these things already. I'm just reminding you. And we should be becoming more godly. Godliness increasing in our reverence and worship for God. You know, when we come together, we should be reverent, focusing on the Lord, giving Him the glory due His name. And that should be in our lives. In our lives. We should be increasing in that. We should be increasing and having an ever-increasing manifestation of brotherly love for one another. We should be loving one another more and more and more. That's what happens as Christ's word works in our heart and we abide in him and grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. If you're growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, you are growing in your love for one another. And lastly, as we saw last week, we should be growing in love for God himself. It should be all-encompassing. We should love the Lord God with all our heart, mind, and soul, with all our strength, everything within us. We should be turning and giving Him the focus, desiring to do His will over our will. That should be growing. We're not all there, but it should be growing. We should have it, and it should be growing. And that leads us within these tremendous qualities that should be within us and growing as believers to our passage today. Notice what he says in verse 8 of Second Peter 1, 2 Peter 1, verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind and short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Here's where the rubber meets the road. And we should know this. There are so many immature Christians that have been Christians for so long. By this time, you ought to be teachers, Hebrews chapter 5. But we need to be reminded, right? For if these qualities are yours and increasing, that these qualities are what? Those seven things that he just spoke of that should be supplied diligently in the context of trusting Jesus and a relationship with him as his word works in our hearts. That's the context. That's the context. These qualities, if these are yours, every single one of them, not a couple of them, every single one, if they are yours, you possess them. And that's what we're going to see. Actually, the term speaks of if they are present, continually, habitually present. Every single one of them. And I want to ask you, are these things present in your life? Is every single one of these present? Moral excellence, knowledge of the Lord, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Are they present? Are they present? I think we can easily attain an answer to that if we evaluate our hearts rightly. Are they present? He says, if they are present. Because we'll see if they're not present... You are blind, and you are short-sighted. And we'll see what that means in a minute. But he says if they're present, but not only are they present, he gives another portion here, present, but also, but increasing. For if these, this whole group, in the context of trusting Christ by his word, working in a heart of a true believer, he says, for if these qualities are yours, they are present in you and increasing. 
This is an interesting word. It speaks of superabounding, getting more and more and more on a continual basis. He says, if they're yours at hand and they are increasing, then there is a tremendous truth associated with this that we should already know, but we need to be reminded. Then he says, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Tremendous statement. So many people think they are so mature in Christ, yet these characteristics are not there. And sometimes they are there, but they're not increasing. We're going to see this is where the rubber meets the road. Peter's saying, hey, this is the reality of a real relationship with Jesus Christ. A real relationship. If the word of God is at work in our hearts in the context of faith, then our true knowledge of Christ is going to bear fruit. When those moral things come before us, we're going to do what God says by his power and his strength rather than doing those immoral things. We're going to grow in our knowledge of him. We're going to grow in our self-control, perseverance, all those things. There's going to be differences in the life of a true believer. Now he says here that you are neither useless or unfruitful. You see, when we trust in Christ and we're walking with him and his words working, we are useful, useful to the master. We are useful vessels. The term translated useless here speaks of idle or inactive. The Lord Jesus used it to speak of those wicked slaves who were supposed to be doing his bidding when they were gone, but they didn't. They were idle.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.